This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And what's brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... TPKs and character death. RCMP misconduct. Crystals. And the Mandalorian. You've perfected the do do You've mastered the mashed potato. You know your dance crew is the hottest around, but now it's time to prove it. Breakdancing Meeples is a real-time dexterity game of, you guessed it, Breakdancing Meeples. Designed by Ben Moy and published by our friends at Atlas Games. To play, roll your Meeple dance crew as fast as you can over and over. Lock in useful rolls and re-roll the rest to complete dance routines and score points. After four one-minute dance rounds, the crew with the most crowd appeal wins the trophy. Breakdancing Meeple comes in a metal tin that's nearly as indestructible as your high school boombox. It plays two to four people ages six and up in five minutes. Find Breakdancing Meeple's at your friendly local game store or at atlas-games.com backslash breakdancing. Because when beats bump, Meeple's gotta dance. It's time for that most initiatory of huts, the preamble hut, uh, where uh, we're going to acknowledge that uh, normally in a regular year outside of the COVID-verse, uh, this would be a Gen Con wrap, but uh, Gen Con Online... Uh, was a very different fish. For one thing, we don't sound like our throats have been dragged across gravel. <laughs> yes, I've, I've had a different set of sensory challenges as a as a result of. of so, that. those of you who enjoy uh, uh, Robbins and I uh, once a year Lauren Bacall contest, we'll have to wait until next year. Let, let's hope it's next year. <laughs> yeah, the Robin. next year there isn't a, a physical Gen Con at any rate. Stop predicting. At anywho, as as we say nowhere, we would talk about what we did at Gen Con, but mostly you can actually find that because, of course, we're only doing uh, online events, and they're all cataloged at the Pelgrain Twitch channel which uh, existed before, but I think really got a workout, uh, got fully inaugurated uh, this time around. Uh, so you can find that at www.twitch.tv slash Press. I should also, we're not going to talk about the Ennies because uh, we uh, co-hosted them and uh, that would be weird. Uh, but mm-hmm. I should uh, very much thank uh, anyone who uh, helped us out by voting for Absinthe in Carcosa in the best RPG-related product category uh, and because it uh, took home the gold. So that was very gratifying. So we'd like to uh, thank uh, everybody on behalf of uh, Dina Engelhart and uh, Kat and the team at uh, Pelgrane. Uh, and finally, uh, among the Twitch episodes is the Ken and Robin live episode in which we were live, but we were getting questions from the audience via chat. And of course, there's no live audience reaction. Um, and uh, you can go and check that out now and see the exciting results of what happens when my internet uh, goes down and I have to switch briefly to data. Yeah. <laughs> That has all sorts of interesting visual effects. Or you can wait found until uh, we drop that as uh, an episode a few weeks from now. And uh, on that note, the, the pre-ambling uh, is, is done. Let us amble uh, to the first segment in our all-request episode. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the gaming hut. But, oh my goodness, Robin, in the gaming hut, I think Peter Frampton may be the only thing that's alive. The miniatures are all lying on their faces and the dice are showing a lot of ones and twenties. Oh, but the ones are on, on oh the my goodness. side of the screen and the ones, oh no, they're yeah. on, the ta- on the player oh, side of the table. Oh dear, that's not good. Lauberfen, beloved Patreon backer Lauberfen, has asked, indeed, what about this total party kill? What about character death? How do you manage those situations in a way that fits the story and ideally doesn't end it prematurely and doesn't alienate the players? Uh, Robin, are you, uh, in, in, as befits a son of the silver birch, a cold Arctic Wendigo of a GM slaying folks as the dice lay, or are you as befits Canada all about 
order and good government and coming together over donuts and or Doritos and working out a solution that doesn't leave everyone dead. I'm a GM who, who wants my game to go well. Right. And to be satisfying and feel not stupid. <laughs> and so uh, the, the TPK in particular is a dreaded event for a, a game moderator or dungeon master, whatever uh, flavor you are. Unless you're at a convention table, in which yeah, case that's, then it's that's groovy. Um, and perhaps in some cases, like a Cthulhu scenario, the entire point. But there aren't, you know, TV shows that end in the middle of season two with everybody being murdered. Although I could I could list for the rest of this episode, the rest of this, not just this segment, Robin, this episode, TV shows that would be better if they ended with everyone well, murdered in yeah, episode Of two. course, yes, but a, a separate thing, right? Yeah. Even, <laughs> even the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones, there's still 7,000 other characters to right. continue the, the narrative yes, yes, onward. Th- th- that was the problem with that show. Not enough Red Weddings. They needed like a <laughs> Red Wedding reception and a, wed- and a Red Bachelor Party and a Red Breakfast. Red honeymoon. And, and of course, uh, <laughs> some narratives, Shakespearean tragedies, for example, yep. or even um, Jacobean revenge tragedies. The whole point is to end with everybody uh, with a, you know, a, a, a prince and a ghost meet and everyone ends in mincemeat. Right. But in general, an unexpected TPK where everybody is dead is a damn pain. And then it makes certainly me think, I wish I had been running this in a system where I had more narrative control over outcomes, or at least that wasn't so swingy and unpredictable with so many different moving parts that this stupid thing could possibly have happened. And as we'll discuss in a moment, even one player dying, sorry, one player dying is terrible. One One, one character dying is, is also often supremely annoying when it isn't engineered or part of the stakes going in. Uh, So can I, I don't, I think it's been ages since I've had a, a full TPK. If you're playtesting, you can just go, oh, well, the rules are obviously broken. This TPK didn't happen. Have you had like just regular gaming TPKs? I don't think outside Call of Cthulhu uh, at a convention, I don't think I've ever had a full TPK. I've had a BMPK, a big majority party kill or a big minority party kill a PPK, a plurality party kill, certainly. And sometimes that's the, that's the choice you make when you play a Call of Cthulhu game. I've had that happen in normal Call of Cthulhu and I've had it happen in my Fall of Delta Green game. We had two out of four characters died in the uh, lengthy Nogalis investigation that preceded the current one. Um, it was two out of the five characters because one of the players replaced their character after she died. Thus, she was alive to see the other character die. But yeah, I mean, death happens in these, in these games and it can be part of the philosophical backdrop as it is in fall of Delta green or part of the message as it is in a game that you're maybe basing on the seven samurai or uh, another drama about people who have to, who have to die because they have no more place to live. Um, Plenty of reasons to die dramatically. And I think that by and large, uh, my deaths happen in genres or in stories where they're supposed to happen by now. Accidental death does turn out to be less common than you'd think, given the number of nearly fatal things player characters get up to uh, in, in an average day. So yeah, I would I would have to think way back to think of the last time outside a Cthulhu game that we had even a multiple player uh, character death, much less... Um, a whole uh, squad of them going out. Well, because when you think about it, even in an F20 game, you have to be, I I think, uh, very rare that you can't see one round ahead that a TPK is on the way. Mm -hmm. And so you can do things to avert that rather than, I I suppose there are GMs who go, well, that's the stats out of the book. That's the way everything rolled. No one will enjoy this, including me, but I'm obligated to the Lars and Penates of the rule book to go ahead and kill everybody. Off. Well, if I you mean, have, if you have a table contract and I've known of tables that do that are very much, we play everything as it lays. We're all victims of the dice. We are telling an emergent story, not a directed story. I can see that being a thing where it's like, yep, turns out that red dragon got a really good lucky breath off and he killed the cleric early and now no one's got any healing. And yep, you guys are just mincemeat. That's just the way the world works. And the players, I mean, being human beings, they'll probably whine about it, but 
they understand that that was what they signed up for when they sat down to that particular table. I don't know that that table contract is super common outside F20 games, for example. I mean, I don't, I'm, I certainly don't think it's common in, in, uh, games like Vampire or, uh, other games where you depend on sort of an ongoing nest of character drama to drive story because that cripples story. If suddenly someone who's the center of half the machinations gets, you know, munched by a werewolf and then they're gone. I, I bet there's like a bunch of GURPS players or yeah. uh, other hard simulation games where yeah. the fact that it is a and simulation. And in Shadowrun, I assume you can get blown up all the time because right, which that is, game has again, never been play it. balanced. And also it, it has high explosive in it. Right. And and I guess the contract there is, okay, you play the next group of people who come in and take over the, right, that's part of the, right. the deal. So uh, when you see uh, a TPK coming, even if that is the deal everybody thinks they've signed on to, you can still say, your bacon's in trouble. Are we simulationists or are we going to turn story gamer for one round uh-huh. <laughs> and give them the, the shot, right? And, and one of the nice things about 13th Age is that it explicitly has that option where there's the, um, you can take a campaign loss if it looks like you're about to be curb stomped by a j- bunch of giants, for example, uh, because you attacked them having a funeral and it turned out to anger them a lot. Uh, <laughs> not that my players would ever <laughs> do anything like that. Um, but you can say, Oh, yeah, we are going to die in like two rounds. Let's take a campaign loss. Something odd rescues us. And, uh, and, and we escape and we lose an objective. And in this case, the objective was getting the Ark of the Covenant back. They had to leave it behind in the fire temple and, and run away. With that, mm-hmm. I think we found the technique for not having an unwanted TPK. Um, if you have the wanted TPK, people wanted it. They signed yep. up for it. They double stamped it just before you did it. And even if suddenly some weird ass thing happens in the course of one round, uh, you can say, well, we have two bad choices. We can either have this last thing be a premonition that one of you is having and we'll rewind around and not have everybody killed off, uh, which is kind of lame. Or we can have everybody die and start a different game, which is also kind of lame. Which bad choice do you want? Right. And I think that pretty much uh, covers uh, TPKs. Um, and the next question is just character death, which is also... And I find often as a GM, I have to remind myself that it is often more annoying to the GM for a long running character to die than it is necessarily for the player. The mm. player, and again, particularly in, in, in crunchier games with all sorts of different character builds, may be going, well, I was kind of bored with uh, Rogana. I, uh, I think I want to do uh, Druidana next. And uh, that's great. Kill her off. And I can, uh, I can build a new character and have somebody... Uh, interesting and groovy come in uh even though all of your storylines revolved around rogana she needs to be there to negotiate with the princesses at the end and uh the whole reason you're there is part of her backstory and the other oh well okay player's good with that because otherwise it's you know why is there death in uh uh traditional role-playing games one as you said it is in genre and the other one is to create a sense of stakes, mm-hmm. uh, a thing that people are worried about uh, having. And ultimately, I think almost always you get a better result when people think their characters are in trouble but survive. Uh, and the closer they come to getting wiped out without actually being smeared across the, the battle mat, the better time they'll have. So you're always sort of flirting with that outcome, and then it turns out to be a kind of a pain for everybody when it occurs. But that's... Uh, I don't know. Is there a metaphor for life in there, Ken? <laughs> I mean, in in a good game, yeah, there's lots of metaphors for life happening all the time. That's kind of what we're doing. In terms of, you know, keeping the story going, I guess the thing to do, because you, especially if you're in a, a game like, let's say, uh, certainly Call of Cthulhu, but any of the BRP games or GURPS or something where there's a realistic amount of damage comes out of a gun and a realistically not a lot of hit points inside a PC, someone could just, you know, lucky shot takes him out, just like in the real world. And I think you as the GM need to be able to say, all right, what happens if, you know, Ned Stark dies in episode two or while Bill Hickok dies? You what you don't want to do is just say, well, literally nothing will happen for the next two and a half seasons because I'm David Milch. What you want to say is 
I have a plan. There are consequences to this happening. Uh, the new character can tie into that if the player wants, or if the player wants to be, you know, a druid and have nothing more to do with those stupid princesses, then the princesses are going to get to squabbling and causing all manner of, of ruckus so that the death does mean something. The death is not just, Oh, look at that. You rolled it. You rolled a one looks bad for you. Uh, the death is no, the, the, the rogue Anna was, she was what was keeping this kingdom from civil war, basically with her machinations and her deviltries. And now the princesses are going at it, hammer and tongs. And that death meant something. And yeah, you've got to upend your game world, but that's what a, a life ending should do, especially a life that's at the center of your drama, not just some, you know, random hobgoblin whose life ends because he's in the way of the treasure. Right. And that's an example of more stuff happening because the character died rather than just a bunch of stuff that you planned on happening doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, several ways to, to uh, think ahead about that. One is if I require a single player to have their uh, current character in order for this storyline to work, find a way for other characters to also care about that and hook them in mm -hmm. because not just might Rogana get uh, stomped uh, by a uh, beholder, but also maybe uh, the character or rather the player won't show up that week. So mm -hmm. make sure that everybody's invested. That's already weak uh, construction of, of your, uh, of your situation. And uh, otherwise, as you've suggested, a sort of plan ahead of, okay, what active things in the storyline will happen as a result of uh, this key character uh, dying so that the storyline doesn't die with them. Um, and there's also the question of how big a stickler the group is for having a character who's obviously just a replacement for that character or you know it's like oh look it's Rogana's sister is uh is of course Druidana and she has the exact same reason to talk to the princesses mm -hmm. uh some people will go oh, well that's an obvious cheat and other people will go yeah it works let's do it let's keep the the game on the road yeah the uh, and again that's a table consequence and some characters le lend themselves better to being replaced in similar fashion. So for example, if it's a call of Cthulhu game and the FBI guy dies, well, of course there's going to be a replacement FBI guy that's going to come investigate his death. That's what the FBI does. And so once he shows up and discovers that there's, you know, ghouls and monsters and shoggoths, of course, he'll keep fighting the mythos because by goodness, that's what the FBI does. If it's a, a, a rich millionaire playboy who dies, the odds that his sister is interested in also getting killed seem lower to me. I mean, you can all, you can always, you know, uh, shave it and say, Oh, she very much loved her brother and wishes revenge upon the gloppy things that killed him. But you, you can see where it begins to get more and more tenuous where it's like, Oh, he's a historian at Miskatonic. Therefore it's my job as a geologist at Miskatonic to avenge him. I don't think so. That becomes ridiculous. Right. In, in which case the group finds himself facing the problem that confronts a TV writer's room often, which is, do we go with what's expedient or do we go with what is credible? We can uh, have one or the other, uh, but not both. And uh, uh, we could then uh, continue on talking for another 15 minutes, but uh, that might be credible for us to do that, but it wouldn't be expedient. But it would not so, be expedient. So let's uh, head on uh, through this commercial to the segment that lies on the other side. As the bloated sun flickers its last. As the final remnants of once mighty mountains dwindle to sand. A rare opportunity for entirely legal theft presents itself to the discerning wanderer. For a few short days, the complete Dying Earth role-playing game has returned to the Bundle of Holding. Published by Pelgrane Press. Based on the classic fantasy stories of Jack Vance. And designed by Robin D. Laws. The Dying Earth RPG sends you, a witty wayfarer unencumbered by scruples, on a picaresque journey of swindles, comeuppances, baroque magic, and ravening creatures. Get the core book and six other essential titles in PDF for a mere 1895. 
or upgrade to the full deal and get a staggering 17 more supplements. That's the entire Dying Earth line, all in your electronic bookshelf. Do not tarry with your viands by the banks of the scom. The bundle of holding can hold this unbelievable bargain only until August 17th. Rush immediately to bundleofholding.com slash presents slash Dying Earth 2020. Sound of gunshots, off. Teletype. Sirens. Welcome again to Crime Blotter. Today on Crime Blotter, beloved Patreon backer Nicolaj, uh, being teased and tempted by Robin's tales of, uh, of Canada's past, wants to hear a short history of Royal Canadian Mounted Police misconduct. And I guess we're differentiating that from their actual conduct of deporting Chinese people and busting up protesters and all the things that they were actually paid to do. This is stuff that they did that was bad that they were not paid to do. Is that? Well, no, the distinction is uh, there's a bunch of things that as a police force, they did under direction that unless you're playing a story about police oppression, uh, (laughs) you're probably going to want to mention or leave off the table. And so there's, this is not the full range of stuff, but the sort of, Mostly kind of espionage RCMP scandals that fit into uh, like a Fall of Delta Green game or right. whatever. Right, okay. The dark side of the Mounties. Right. Well, there's multiple dark sides. <laughs> yes. So the, the, the other real dark side, let's talk about that for just a bit longer. Uh, the RCMP uh, had for a while a ridiculously large remit and now uh, has a weirdly long remit. Um, they used to be the counterintelligence agency, uh, as well as being a federal police force, but also a small town police force in smaller communities, mostly in the West, that didn't have other policing or didn't want to have municipal police forces. And so even today, uh, that means in a lot of small towns that they uh, have extremely poor relations, often with First Nations communities. And so all of the sort of everyday police abuses uh, that you can imagine, or when they're in charge of uh, being riot police, which is not very often they act like riot police. So there's a whole other litany of things that you can uh, look up, but we're going to focus on the stuff that you can p- possibly more likely fit in a, in a game. Right. Um, so the, the context here is, of course, uh, even more so than the FBI, the Mounties, the RCMP with their musical ride, have a accretion of myth around them that has... Uh, covered a, a multitude of sins and scandals uh, over the years. And certainly Americans uh, think of uh, uh, the RCMP as being Dudley Do-Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, there's still cops. And uh, for a long time, they were the security service, as I mentioned before. But unlike, for example, the CIA or MI5, their cultural class position within the Canadian hierarchy is quite different because while uh, everybody... Uh, in the Foreign Affairs Department, for example, will be a uh, university grad. And in the years we're uh, focusing on here, uh, of course, from the white establishment, uh, the uh, Mounties are uh, at this time uh, almost universally white, but they're mostly high school grads. And their politics are quite different than everybody else in the Canadian establishment. They are, dare I say it, more American in their conservatism. And so uh, they're the only party uh, within the federal government that takes, for example, the uh, red menace uh, seriously and is looking to to find infiltrators in uh, the Canadian government. Ironically, turns out the mole was in the RCMP. <laughs> Isn't that always the way? Isn't that always the way? It was the son of a commissioner who was uh, on the take. Uh, but that's yet another story. So, and in order to get promoted from constable to officer and therefore be eligible to be in the security service, which had different names at different times, you uh, went through such rigorous procedures as being asked to read the criminal code, which you'd have to purchase yourself, or have a memory improvement course. And there you go. After that, you were unleashed on uh, the uh, the task of uh, being a spy hunter. Uh, supposedly, for a long time, the Watcher Service, which was held at a remove from the RCMP, they were the uh, the followers who followed uh, the, the Soviets and other uh, targets were often quite good at their job, but they were in a different category. 
Uh, and it's really in the, uh, and so even in the fifties, and this sort of changes depending on who's in charge of the federal government, but the, uh, expectation of the RCMP leadership is that, uh, whether you're talking about the security service or investigation of major crimes, that the constables and officers naturally would commit other crimes in the course of their investigation. Of course you would do that because. Mm-hmm. The guys we're hunting get to commit crimes. So it's unfair for us not to do that. And in fact, the first sort of burgeoning movement toward there being a police union among the RCMP was there. Hey, are we covered <laughs> when we commit crimes under under orders? And the initial response was, well, no, they're, they're called crimes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I'm sure you wrote a report on the criminal code. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's right there. You, yeah. you did pay for the criminal code, didn't you? Um, and the perhaps not unreasonable in this narrow instance uh, response was, uh, no, we're not going <laughs> to do that if we're not kept. So there was a compromise right, yeah. struck, which was any crimes uh, that you do for us, we will we will cover for you. Any crimes you do on your own remit, that's still yours. Those are still, that's still your, your That's still your problem. So the idea of just breaking into somebody's house or uh, having an illegal uh, wiretap or uh, opening people's mail with, uh, which was a, you know with, without a warrant or any sort of permission, uh, those were all uh, on the table when uh, we had conservative federal governments. When the liberals would get in, it's like, oh, my God, it's going to be more difficult for the next few years. And then, uh, but by the time. Uh, the uh, late 60s, early 70s uh, roll around. Uh, the liberals are absolutely in charge, but we have 60s radicalism, uh, which includes not just a regular good old-fashioned 60s radicalism in the other nine provinces, but a uh, violent separatist movement, the uh, FLQ, uh, the Front de Liberation de Quebec, are operating, uh, and therefore the RCMP are charged with busting them up. And they both succumb to and promulgate the fear that the FLQ is much larger than it is and that the legal separatist party, the Parti Québécois, is essentially just a giant front for the FLQ. And it was that uh, misperception that in 1970 leads Pierre Trudeau, the, the original Prime Minister Trudeau, to declare the War Measures Act uh, it suspends civil rights to round up peaceful uh, regular separatists, a lot of them. Uh, and this is prompted by two kidnappings, uh, one of which uh, leads to a murder. And some mailboxes get blown up, uh, some of them blown up by the RCMP as part of as a provocation. And this is when the, the stories that you might then fit into a scenario uh, come into play. So, as I said, and so in addition to break-ins and illegal uh, surveillance and mail openings and wiretaps, uh, they engage in ego deflation. Which is a uh, isn't that just where, being Canadian? Well, I, I, this is uh, I, I would not pref- prefer my ego to be deflated in this manner. Which is they would pick someone who they wanted to be an informant, drive up, kidnap them, pull them into an unmarked vehicle, take them off to a hotel or something, and interrogate them uh, in hopes of breaking them down and coercing them to turn informant. This is where the lack of, of uh, tradecraft training. It comes to mind because, Ken, as you know, that's not how you recruit informants in the spy world. I mean, not unless you've already got something on them. I mean, if you, you could imagine doing that just as a way to get a meeting that says, we have pictures of you molesting a caribou or whatever, so you have to come uh, work for us. But you don't just do it at random and say, we're mean to you in a hotel room. Now you're on our side. That doesn't work. Yeah, No, it doesn't work. In order to have someone cooperate extensively with you over time, you they have to have a reason <laughs> yes. to do that other than that you kidnapped them and were, were mean to them. And were ego deflating. So uh, <laughs> other famous incidents in 1972, uh, they burn a barn where an FLQ cell is supposed to meet the Black Panthers. Why that wouldn't just result in those two groups meeting in a different barn unclear to me also unclear to me and i'm sure to uh if they when they did eventually finally contact each other to each other why they would have anything to do with each other those two well groups. i mean I, I my assumption is that the mounties and the fbi are doing cross-border cooperation in that time because this first of all huge period for the vietnam draft evaders so they're flooded into canada amongst them j edgar would assume lots of anti-american radicals and bad people uh, and he would ask the Mounties, hey, Mounties, do me a solid. 
keep an eye on these guys. Oh, yeah, it makes sense why the Mounties would be would be concerned for this happening. What's not American radicals? What, what the what the Black Panthers and FLQ were thought they might get up together. I, I think it's more of a, a the theory might be that they would have a common enemy. I guess so, or at least they're going to have a meeting to decide whether they had a common enemy. Right, that they both don't like the Mounties and the FBI, or just because it would be hilarious. At any rate, <laughs> the, the barn got burned down. <laughs> a bunch of Quebecois and a bunch of Black Panthers, and that didn't happen. So the meeting didn't occur, or did it occur? It, d- it did not the occur. Next day at a Tim Hortons. Yeah, and I, I I'm assuming that. Well, we we don't know why we were having a meeting anyway. So <laughs> this meeting was stupid. It deterred us. Um, <laughs> Another uh, famous operation at this point, and and I think for me the funniest one, is uh, Operation Brook Hole in 1972, uh, where uh, the RCMP, without informing other law enforcement agencies, so they're afraid of getting busted by the Montreal cops, uh, decide to... Uh, raid, not raid, that mean, implies that a, a legal police action is taking place, but rather break into and steal from the offices of the Agence de Presse Libre de Quebec, which sounds like a press agency, but was a leftist organization or leftist organization slash press agency. And they spent all night, like, looking out the window, hoping that the Montreal cops didn't come by, as they uh, printed out the entire contents of the... Uh, 1972 computers onto paper and stealing other uh, documents. And they wound up with basically six hockey bags full of documents. And again, what they're trying to prove here is that the FLQ is much larger than it actually is and that the vast chunks of the uh, legal separative movement are uh, actually fifth columnists, basically. Right. Um, and so they uh, leave with many, many hockey bags full of documents which they n- then don't have the manpower to ever look at. <laughs> well, that's that's always the way, isn't it? Yes. It's a big physicalized example of the difficulty in intelligence. It's not gathering the raw intelligence, but filtering it down uh, to uh, anything. But did they learn their lesson? No. So in 73, they conduct Operation Ham, which is another break-in, this time directly at Parti Québécois headquarters, in which they steal the membership list. Because, of course, that once and for all is going to reveal the uh, vast uh, conspiracy that connects those two organizations. Um, but it doesn't. I mean, I, I do, I do want to just briefly, you know, give a shout out to the Mounties because there's a reason we see them as Dudley do rights. Your big scandal is you burned down a barn. Meanwhile, the Chicago police department are straight up murdering Fred Hampton while he's asleep. So a barn burning is bad. I grant you, but is it 1972 bad? Really? Well, it's 1972 and 73 uh, Canada bad. Right. And results in our equivalent, uh, segueing, he says, of, of the Church Commission. Because a few years later in 76, uh, this all breaks open when a former member of the security squad, uh, Robert Sampson, uh, is busted uh, in a semi-abortive bombing attempt in which a bomb is planted outside the home of a grocery magnet. And the reason uh, he's doing that, if you smell that Robert Sampson has now been uh, hired by the mob, you are correct. And he is arrested and put uh, put on trial and, and blurts out, we did much worse against the FLQ. <laughs> and that's uh, where the floodgates open. And so there, were, uh, there was a provincial inquiry, but it was quashed. Then there was a federal inquiry and everything came out. And so one of the uh, security service members testified at the uh, uh, inquiry. Uh, the first thought was always expedience. And my second reaction is about propriety. <laughs> and of course, propriety doesn't mean legality or doing the right thing. It just means what it looks like. Yeah. So eventually, not right away, but in, in the slow and glacial a pace of a peace order and good government. Eventually, the security service is taken away from the RCMP and given to a professionalized civilian uh, agency called uh, CSIS, the Canadian Security and Intelligence uh, Service. So, of course, that means that the RCMP never does anything like that. Oh, wait a minute. In 1998, as part of a long-running attempt to bust an Alberta uh, farmer slash Luddite religious leader named uh, Weibo Ludwig, who is heavily suspected of running a sabotage campaign against the oil company that is polluting his farmland. They plant a bomb of their own and blow up a shed with the permission of the oil company, AE West, in an attempt to frame him. So a little bit of that old 
yes, you can do crime spirit occasionally still uh, surfaces uh, among the uh, RCMP. Yeah. And then fortunately, the CSIS has never done anything bad except destroy wiretap evidence and lie on the stand and generally be like a domestic intelligence service. So good for everyone, I guess, Canada. Uh, so with the Mounties, are the Mounties just like sort of irredeemable thugs like the uh the the modern and goodness knows he deserves it but um the modern myth of the hoover era fbi or is there like uh, a a a good mounty at the top who's just shocked and appalled at all of this or are there other good i mean how do you how do you run this from within if you're a, a canadian delta green team if you're in m section if, if you're running it in the era uh there's very respectable outwardly a nice pleasant both uh, suspiciously American around the edges uh, leadership that is absolutely directing this and thinks right. that is the right thing because they falsely believe that there's a giant, violent, subversive organization in Quebec. Right, that the FLQ is, is basically like the IRA, that the Parti Québécois is the Sinn Féin, and it's basically just getting set to wrench Canada asunder. Right, or even bigger than the IRA insofar as they're they, they actually fear that they will possibly succeed at violent revolution. Well, I mean, depending on how you count it, the IRA sort of did succeed at violent revolution in 1922. So there you are. So, so in terms of other sorts of threats and things going on, are there other domestic radicals that the, uh, that the Mounties are also after? Uh, I know in America, we've got the American Indian movement. Uh, so the beginning of, of the uh, native rights uh, direct action, is there that kind of thing that they're going after also? Um, in this period, they are also infiltrating white radicals of bourgeois origin who've gone hippie. Uh, and so, and some of them violent uh, and, or uh, some of them rhetorically violent, if not actually mm -hmm. uh, violent. And so in one in instance in BC, they successfully planted an agent within a, a radical hippie commune, but they finally identified him because he dutifully did his share of the chores. <laughs> That's lovely. Uh, the, the only clean guy in the hippie commune is the FBI. He's plant. obviously, he's obviously, he's the, obviously Mountie. the Mountie. Um, well, obviously, uh, we could probably go on and on and on about uh, the uh, misadventures of uh, our friends to the north our smoky headed friends to the north but at some point i guess uh we have to leave stuff for eight million more segments on this topic right robin uh, yes indeed so it's time for us to head to the next segment The Best of Ask Fageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Make your desire to sustain this podcast crystal clear by joining such esoteric Patreon backers as Keelan O'Hay, Martin Rundqvist, Urs Blumentritt, John Buckley, and Nate Merritt. It's time once again to wend our way up the creepy cobweb stairs where we will... Oh, wait a minute. What the hell? There's a different portrait now up on the wall, and there's little bits of an older portrait lying charred at the bottom of the foyer, but instead of glowering Madame Blavatsky, there's the king of the fire salamanders. There's some, been some occult revolution, some some terrible overthrow. And that's not even the subject of this segment. As we head on in through the door where awaits the uh, somewhat disconcerted 
consulting occultist uh, because uh, he's got a completely different assignment other than this war of paintings. And uh, he's going to answer the question posed by Corey Pierno. How did crystals come to be seen as magical tools in fantasy and the popular imagination? I know they were always seen as having special properties, but when did they make the jump? Who was the first to really lean on them in fiction? And even before I looked at uh, your uh, somewhat uh, skeletal point form notes here, my assumption would be that like a lot of things in the occult that we think of as being very ancient and going back a long time, in fact, is surprisingly new. Yep. Is that correct? It is. And we have to separate out in a way that no new ager ever does. We have to separate out the generic magic of gems from the new age magic of crystals. Because gems have always been seen as having some sort of magical significance, either magical healing, uh, some sort of uh, connection to the gods, uh, because guess what? They're valuable and they're pretty. And who that's why they call them gems. That's why they call them gems. So uh, gem magic goes back to before the ancient Greeks. Uh, if you read Pliny, he will just talk your arm off about all the magic powers of, of various stones. There's a whole book called, I believe, The Mineralis. It's not by Agrippa, but by one of Agrippa's homies. So it's a big part of uh, the Renaissance tradition of magic all the way through the Middle Ages, uh, all the way back to classical times. Ma gem magic has never not been fun. Then also, we have scrying magic in which you look into a thing, whether it be a bowl of water or a bunch of entrails or a cloudy sky, or in some cases, a mirror or a crystal ball to see the future. And the crystal ball may actually have begun with our buddy John D, who got himself an obsidian crystal ball from friends, I guess, who stole it from the Spanish, who stole it from the Aztecs. But uh, either way, John D wound up with his crystal ball. And the two of us have been in the presence of that crystal ball at the same time. We have been at that crystal ball, seen it. And, and so he made a big deal out of it because, you know, he had, he had books to buy. I get it. And so divination in a crystal goes back at least to John D and probably before that. There is a back and forth argument carried on uh, a great deal within the works of um, uh, Robert Temple about uh, the question of to what extent is crystal magic, crystal magic, and to what extent is it concealing things like um, sunstones, which are pieces of rock crystal that you hold up and you can measure the diffraction of the sun if you know your stone well, and that may be how the Vikings could navigate across the icy North Atlantic, or maybe like in everything, Robert Temple is a crazy person and that never happened. But there's certainly arguments about sunstones being used in uh, Scandinavian times, which implies that they were used for some sort of either divination, communication with the gods or navigation. And again, not necessarily an either or, because if you see birds fly, that is both an omen and a sign that there's land there. So it's, it's uh, six of one, half dozen of the other. So leaving all of that aside, what we think of as crystal power comes out of the experiments, ultimately, of uh, Jacques and Pierre Curie, who discovered the piezoelectric effect in 1880. And the piezoelectric effect is basically when you push on a crystal, it generates an electrical charge. And that's just a fact of how crystals are shaped. And it took until 1880 for someone to discover it because before then it was very hard to measure electricity uh, in a useful way. So the uh, piezoelectric effect went on to eventually uh, do crystal watches and crystal radios and all manner of other things that uh, that, that we use uh, uh, little uh, industrially shaped crystals for. And that, of course, means that once something has been invented by science, new age people have to rush to it and make nonsense up about it because now it is, it is cool. It is fun. It is in the public knowledge base. And the most famous person, the, the sort of the, I don't want to say he's patient zero because between 1880 and 1960 seems like a long way, but certainly back during his uh, career, uh, the sleeping seer Edgar Casey would give advice, and not just with healing with crystals, which, like I said, goes potentially all the way back to Hippocrates, but using crystals uh, for power generation. And that uh, Edgar Casey said that that's how Atlantis did it. And he would go into a trance, or as I like to call it, lie down on the couch for a nap. <laughs> yes, yeah, see, he 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 would he he would nap it out. 
He'd say, excuse me while I nap this out. Yeah, exactly. He'd nap it out. Um, I, I have no evidence that he had a cat, but I hope he did. And he has a, um, uh, an amanuensis who sits there and says, you know, um, beloved Edgar Casey, Patreon backer, Mrs. Uh, Stevens writes to know, uh, were there angels in Atlantis? And he would say, well, here's the thing about Atlantis. You got to know and just sort of riff. And, uh, the riffs all got written down and put in files. And for some reason, Possibly just good marketing, Edgar Casey became a big deal, and the Casey transcripts were mined to be turned into New Age books on all manner of topics. And one of those that came out in 1960 was Gems and Stones, which again doesn't have crystals in the name of it, but it talks a great deal about the crystal power of Atlantis and how uh, the Atlanteans and the uh, Egyptians and everybody used the powers of crystals to make noises. And again, this is something that crystals do when you, you push on them, you can get a musical tone uh, as a, an effect of the piezoelectric charge. So the connection of crystals to acoustics, to music comes out of that uh, scientific uh, finding via the new age tradition. It's Blavatsky doesn't seem to have had a lot to say about crystals, but a lot of the later theosophists, when they were trying to figure out how the Lemurians did their wonderful magic, they decided that it was crystals and acoustics and tones. And uh, Casey sort of is is in that mix and, and, and is drawing it into his uh, various uh, nap chats. Then uh, Edgar Casey, like I say, the, the Casey Institute blows these out. These all books become huge sellers. You can't get away from them. They're, you know, on spinner racks and grocery stores. Uh, and so it's not that far before it goes to the softer side of science fiction, shall we say, with Marion Zimmer Bradley's Darkover stories. And Darkover begins in 58, but apparently, and I have not read the Darkover novels in any depth, but the crystalline matrix that amplifies psionic power comes from a novel called The Sword of Aldones from 1962. So MZB, obviously, huge New Age person, big fan of the nonsense uh, of all sorts, your matriarchal magic, your 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 loosey-goosey approach to literary criticism, whatever uh, you got, Marion Zimmer Bradley was there for you. And Darkover definitely becomes a big, giant, foundational text of sort of mystic-y science fiction. Uh, it's not super mystical, but it's got a mystical quality to it. And then it's mystical enough to launch a thousand crystal shops. Exactly. And in 1967, uh, Terry Brooks begins writing the sword of Shannara, which by 1980 has magic crystals, that power airships in them, the diapson crystals. And what, whoever hadn't read dark over definitely read Shannara and uh, the level of trash and slurry that flowed out of, uh, out of uh, Terry Brooks as, well, it's still flowing. It, it has not ceased since the 1970s. So, um, I would say that, uh, Edgar Casey is your, is, is your first, uh, transmitter. Uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley amplifies it. And then Terry Brooks makes it the lazy, stupid choice because it's a Terry Brooks choice. And the advantage of, see, if gems are magical, you uh, have to sell them, but they're already very expensive. But if crystals, which are not inherently expensive, no, they are not. you then attribute magical properties to them. You can mark them up by not just 100%, 200%. You can mark them up 114,000% because exactly. they're magic now. Yeah. And if you get one that's that's a nice pink color or something, then you can say, oh, no, that's good for love energy. You get one that's a little bluish, you say, oh, that one's good for um, uh, talking to heaven or, uh, or, or money or something. And you can have all manner of fun because crystals are just basically pieces of quartz. Quartz is naturally crystalline in all of its forms. So bang up a piece of quartz, which you can get for, I don't even know, like maybe a nickel a pound. I don't even know what quartz goes for, but it is, as you say, dirt cheap. And you uh, either get a jeweler or you yourself just bang it up in, into a nice shape with a hammer. And there you go. Look at you. You've got a lovely magic crystal that is, in fairness, no more or less magic than anything else. So you're, you're really getting all the magical power of a sapphire at a substantial fraction of the cost. That's just good business, as you said. Right. And there's nothing wrong with the fact that it doesn't have a 2,000-year pedigree behind it. It's, it's new magic tech. Exactly. It's, it's brand new because... Uh, Edgar Casey uh, had a nap and figured that all out. Right, he did it for us. We still haven't determined whether he ha had a cat, but apparently he did 
three readings for a dog named Mona, uh, determining that uh, Mona was a reincarnated lion. There we are. I, I think that's good news for everybody, quite frankly. So he was an, a- an animal person of some kind. Yeah. I mean, well, he's certainly aware of the secret lions in a dog. I think we've all met a dog that we suspect was a lion in a previous life. I feel like that's not unusual. Yes. dogs. But I, I think we've digressed, uh, which means it's time for us to uh, exit uh, this hut and then uh, slide on over uh, to uh, probably an adjacent hut of some kind. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. Well, you can't say the snow on the screen, and you can barely even say the blank blue blot on the screen. Now you've just got to say the spinning wheel welcomes us into the Orthicon tube-laden television hut. And here in the television hut, beloved Patreon backer Walter Manbeck wants us to, I believe, tell him more about the Mandalorian. Robin, is that a fair assessment of Walter Manbeck's request? Yeah, I think, uh, and, and Walter in particular wants us to go into the... Uh, it's paying off my review of The Mandalorian, which, spoiler, we both liked. Uh, speaking of spoilers, uh, we are uh, putting this segment uh, unusually for a television hut at the end of the episode so that if you have not yet seen The Mandalorian and wish it to remain pristine, uh, you can jump out prematurely now and come back and listen uh, after you've seen it. But we both recommend that you do so, even if that makes us shills for the Disney Corporation. Oh, you, you hate to be a shill, but on the other hand... I mean, they gave they gave us the Mandalorian, Robin. That's very nice of them. The Mandalorian is pretty darn good. And uh, without going into uh, 15 minutes of the recent movies are bad, the Mandalorian is good. I think the thing uh, that we can start off with the Mandalorian is that uh, John Favreau and uh, his crew of writers uh, and directors not only uh, love Star Wars, but they are reacting to the world and building a new story that is very much feels like it happens in that world, but is not trying to recreate classic moments from the other films. And so uh, I think that is part of what it makes it feel so satisfying is that they've gone back to uh, Lucas's influences and deep, deep, deep uh, into the uh, fringes of the canon, the things in the different sides of the screen, little moments, there's some super crazy Easter eggs. Uh, and uh, because the only way to watch this is on uh, Disney Plus, that uh, ensures that you also have access to the quite copious special features, uh, which very rarely for this sort of thing justify the length and attention and will really help you uh, see the, the uh, not only the technical advances, but the unusual structure that they used to create the show. Like, for example, they had all the directors hang out together and work in concert in order to create a consistent tone. And you can feel that uh, television. Typically, a new director will jump in for one episode, jump yeah, out. They're, they're hired guns. Yeah, right? they're hired guns. These were hired guns, too, but they were hanging around. They were part of a team, part of a collaboration. And uh, I, I think that also helps with the cohesiveness. The only problem with the special features is that once you see the instrument that makes the haunting motif uh, of the Mandalorian, you'll go, oh, that's not nearly as cool as I thought. But that actually looks dorky, even though it sounds great. But other than that, still worth seeing. Yeah, I guess we can just allude to the fact that the whole thing is shot, for the most part, I, I think they do a few exteriors, but almost all of it is shot in a giant soundstage 
against a, not a green screen, but an actual projected backdrop, like a matte painting, but a matte painting that is made by the Unreal Engine and moves around and does all the stuff that a real world would do if you had Disney money to make the real world instead of merely God. Right. Right. And so it's it's all uh, the actors are interacting with the fake environment rather than a green screen. I think there, as you point out, there probably are, there are some green screen shots, but the vast majority of it, they're interacting with a, a projected environment that looks like it does in post. They're just shooting. The CGI material is created first and then the acting occurs. Right. And that uh, not only, I assume, for the actors gives them a sense of reality. Uh, they know what they're supposed to be reacting to, but even stuff like the lighting is the actual lighting of this this projected dome thing that's all around them, right. reflecting onto the which uh, again so, makes it feel once you watch it on your TV like you're watching something that was shot in a sandpit in Tunisia, like real Star Wars, not something that was built in Marin County, even though this was probably built in Marin County, right? It it just it's a it's an entirely different way to have Star Warsy background without traveling all over the world and, and building eight million different spaceships. So not only are they making cool characters out of like a walk-in droid who is in one shot behind Boba Fett for thirty seconds, uh, but they are uh, going back further into uh, Lucas's original inspirations, uh, so that uh, this is obviously an homage to the uh, original Star Wars films, but it also is an homage to the things that Lucas himself was homaging. So most obviously there is the Western tradition as it already filters through a series of filmmakers from John Ford, mm -hmm. uh, then uh, Akira Kurosawa uh, takes... Uh, Ford in particular and other uh, classic Hollywood Western directors and infuses that spirit into the uh, samurai picture. And the most obvious reference points then for that are uh, the uh, Seven Samurai, which gets an explicit homage episode mm -hmm. uh, and a lone wolf and cub and the lone, but uh, staying on the, uh, the Kurosawa tip for the moment, Yojimbo. Right. Yeah. Cause Yojimbo is then right. taken by Sergio Leone to become the man with no name. And uh, the Mandalorian is very much uh, the man with no name in this series to the yeah. point that Pablo Pascal's voice performance, he's doing Clint. He's doing sixties right. Clint. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, if you want to see the Ford influence in, uh, Star Wars, you can uh, look at the uh, the scene where Luke's aunt and uncle are are uh, found murdered by the stormtroopers. That's uh, from the searchers. Um, and uh, you can see the Kurosawa influence uh, in the treatment of the droids, who are the peasants from the hidden fortress, and even the use of wipes. Mm -hmm. The uh, iconic, uh, now old-timey uh, cinematic technique that uh, almost no one uses anymore is from... Uh, Kurosawa. So uh, Favreau and his directors have uh, very much taken that uh, visual language and that set of images and themes. And so uh, by going back to those sources, they can create something that feels like it is part of the, the canon, but as also uh, its own specific new thing uh, that uh, I think works really surprisingly well for anything, whether television or uh, in the cinemas. Yeah. And again, in terms of where it goes, once you say, let's do samurai Westerns in star Wars, there's the specific sort of frame story becomes, um, I think you said the rifleman and, uh, I said lone wolf and cub and it's lone wolf and cub as the rifleman basically. Yep. Are we going to get through an entire segment on Mandalorian with neither of us saying baby Yoda? I mean, without me saying that no, now, apparently we haven't, apparently we haven't, but <laughs> the quality of making that uh, all right here's my question i guess was that something that some mad satanic genius at disney came up with and said you have to have a cool toy in the show uh, the evidence uh, and not just a spaceship model or do you think that it was just like they wrote lone wolf and cub and they said make us a baby yoda and then they made a baby yoda and everyone said 
oh my god, that is the best thing in the world. Uh, if if this had been directed from the merchandising department, they would have had Baby Yodas in stores when the show dropped, and they didn't. Right. O- oddly, yeah. it had not occurred to them to get the, the stores full of Baby Yodas. <laughs> right. And then they did. Uh, they 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 were very mean, and they shut down a bunch of knitters who had Baby Yoda patterns that they were putting up on uh, various knitting websites. So. That was uh, that was another sign that uh, Disney was in a panic mode, not a thinking ahead mode. Disney got a Disney. So, so those are the basic sort of. I think we're in agreement. First of all, that it's good. Second of all, that it's Leone's Im- interpolation of Kurosawa is the basic, you know, directorial note to it. And then the storyline. I, I, again, I think we're in agreement where the storyline is coming from. Do you think that there's more directions that that show can go, or is it just going to do like, well, that was our you know, fistful of dollars. Now we're going to do a few dollars more and then we're going to finish it up with the good, the bad and the droidal. And that'll be our Mandalorian arc. Or do you think that, well, they've clearly set out a place for it to go. Mm -hmm. Um, It obviously would not surprise me that after a brilliant uh, first season that is uh, with a couple of quibbles, uh, actually, I only have one quibble uh, nearly perfect. Uh, that then they don't know where to how to replicate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me. But they definitely <laughs> left themselves room for somewhere to go because his mission isn't over. He's got to find Baby Yoda planet. Right. Yeah. And there's you know there's going to be a whole planet of Yodas. And I don't know about you, but I think Baby Yoda planet might be under threat by the time the Mandalorian gets there. You feel like maybe um, uh, the various uh, Imperial uh, stay behinds and hard cores might be going after baby Yoda planet. Uh, it might be their last ditch attempt. And and there, there we get to my criticism is, is that although it certainly solves the problem of how to do a star Wars story without blowing up the death star, they still haven't figured out how to have an antagonist other than the empire. In this case, Imperial holdouts. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess since we know that the empire is going to basically rebuild with the same exact uniforms and spaceships in 30 years, it makes sense that they're going to be this sort of low boiling, you know, fry you know, stormtrooper type movement and then blow up again. It, it makes sense. But, you know, maybe one of the seasons they'll have other bad guys. That would be cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, though, that, you know, they, they if they're going to do that, they, they need to they need to introduce someone who's a credible other bad guy. I mean, Jabba the Hutt is literally the only other bad guy who isn't an Imperial that we've met in the course of nine movies now. That's so, what I'm saying. Make up a new thing, people. Yep. Uh, well, that's that's not as easy the, the, as it the, sounds. The, the new Star Trek made up the Borg. You can do it. Yep. You can do it, Star Wars people. All right. All right. Well, I'm sure John Favreau can do it. He can do no wrong. We love John Favreau. This podcast loves John Favreau. Other cool things is the fact that uh, within its arc, it successfully manages an episodic structure. Thank the Lord. Back thank, to my Rifleman reference, force. right? That's yep. why I was saying Rifleman rather than Lone Wolf and Cub is that Lone Wolf and Cub is also episodic, though, in the manga, at least. It's like a classically organized 60s television show in the middle Mm -hmm. where there's a new problem, a new cast of characters, a new thing, and it resolves. And then some of those things come back at the end for the more traditional big wrap-up bit at the end. Mm -hmm. And so each episode is, even even those continuity-heavy ones, are telling a self-contained story that is part of a broader story rather than just... The uh, the dire botchkoization of here's a little bit of messing around here and here's mm-hmm. this deal here and then here's this thing that we're going to introduce and then forget to pay off that it's all very uh, all very tight and very structured disciplined and, so, and yes. that and that again I think is is down to John Favreau that he has that story sense um, uh, it's it's certainly been made clear that Iron Man two was not his fault that Disney or Marvel at that time forced him to you know slow the movie down for forty five minutes and do nothing. But left to himself, Favreau, I think, has a pretty tight story sense. And, uh, you know, all, all blessings to him to make an, an actual television show. And then I guess that's another question is, will the, you know, inevitable uh, hellish drift of a Hollywood writer's room ruin that in, in season two? Right. Because uh, Daredevil, for example, had that structure in its first season. And then they went, oh, you know, it's easier just to tell a long, meandering story. Let's do that. So. Yep. Uh, maybe Werner Herzog's uh, character will have a brother. We can hope for that. Oh, a twin brother or a clone? A clone. I they want a clone Herzog. Clone Zog. And, and again, while we're handing out props, if you're going to hire Werner Herzog to be in Star Wars, they made perfect use of him. He was so, he was so expertly good. deployed. They gave him a Werner Herzog speech straight out of the narration from one of his documentaries about the hellishness of nature and adapted mm-hmm. it to 
the uh, imperial ideology. Yeah, their their guest star game has been generally very good on this on this show. Obviously, you know, all praise to Gina Carano, uh, who a generation uh, needs to uh, fall back in love with again, and now go watch Haywire. You 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 people but uh you know you read a thing that says bill burr is going to be in a star wars show and you're like well this is going to be a tire fire but no his character was just a an asshole from space boston and so great <laughs> yes he's <laughs> bill burr is, is a really he, he's also really good in the, the king of staten island it's a, a regular uh human from earth right um uh, yes he's great uh and uh, uh there's a bunch of little comedian cameos in there there's uh, uh horatio sands unrecognizable under uh under alien makeup, uh, uh, Brian Posehn shows up very briefly indeed, and they fit well in the uh, the grizzled uh, Star Wars universe. And wasn't that um, Jason Sudeikis is one of the two stormtroopers that are arguing about Jason whether or not Sudeikis they should... and Adam uh -huh. Pally yeah. are the uh, stormtroopers at the end? Yeah. So um, that's, I mean, uh, by and large, you know, Star Wars TV show. I was watching it more out of a sense of grim duty, and then I was watching it in a sense of joyful amazement, and now I'm. I'm, you know, clearly season two can, can, can spiral out of, uh, out of control and slam into a wall, but, uh, it, it, it's not that easy apparently. And it's certainly never done regardless of how easy it is to make eight good episodes of TV in a row. So all praise to the Mandalorian. Um, and if you haven't watched it, uh, for whatever reason, we are, encourage you to borrow a Disney login from a friend or loved one and uh, or, watch or, it. As or, or even pay nine bucks to Disney. Go or nuts. even pay nine bucks to Disney. Whatever. I mean, Robin, that's good government for you. But but I I would say it, it it hits on all cylinders and even cylinders that are not hit upon regularly. It's it's not the same old same old. I guess is 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 my uh, ending uh, summation there. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's refreshing to be able to uh, explain something we like. And explain why it works. Yeah, that's a that's a joy. And if we seem and a somewhat little, harder, uh, dumbfounded and incoherent, that's that's why <laughs> uh, we don't do this as as often as we would like to. Well, uh, it's uh, time for us to uh, go off and uh, sell our little bricks uh, and have them made into armor. But we'll be back uh, fully armored for next week's show. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Make sure this podcast keeps its helmet on by joining such backers as... Dan O'Hanlon. Daniel Gill. Ernest Muller. Garrett Fitzgerald. And Hyperlexic. Where the show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate the bookhound in your life with our latest design, Three Points in Library Use. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>